This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Baton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this final episode for 2018, Karon reflects on the competition law conversation so far. Here's Karon Beaton Wells. When I started the Competition Law podcast, I thought there'd be a first series on competition in a digital age, and then we'd move on to exploring some of the other many important issues in the world of competition policy, law, and enforcement. But 18 episodes later, and we're still talking big tech, and there remains so much more to talk about. In this episode, as we all wind down for the holiday season, hopefully reacquaint ourselves with family and friends, and perhaps catch up on some podcast listening, I thought it would be a good time to take stock of what's been covered and uncovered in the first six months of the podcast. So if you've just discovered competition law, welcome. Or if you've missed a few episodes, let this be your guide to our back catalogue. Looking back, there's been several key debates that have been recurring themes in the wide-ranging discussion so far. One that seems to be at the heart of differences of opinion on the many issues we've discussed is whether the advent of the mega-platforms is something we even need to worry about from a competition point of view. Making the case firmly for the affirmative, Professor Maurice Stuckey took up the cudgels in our first episode. When I'm like disgusted with Facebook and their privacy policy and they're giving their data, I could decide to quit. But unless I can convince all of my friends, all of my relatives, all of like the school functions that post pictures on Facebook, all of the colleges that have Facebook for the children. So if you want to see your children's activities, you have to go on Facebook. Unless I can convince them to move to some other platform, I'm pretty much stuck then with Facebook. So that gives Facebook then a tremendous amount of power. And Maurice was by no means alone in his views. Jonathan Tepper, for example, author of the new book, The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition, he sees big tech as symptomatic of a systemic issue. I certainly think that it could be considered a poster boy for the problems. The book looks at dozens of industries that have seen a decline in competition. The tech industry probably is the most extreme. The internet was meant to be open, free, anarchic, and now basically we have two companies essentially completely dominating what people find and see. But voices on the other side of the debate, those who think concerns about the size of the tech giants is all a bit of fuss about nothing – they were no less passionate. Indeed, for those counselling caution against panic, it was helpful to take a historical perspective. As we heard from Professor Dixon Lenzi, I'm sure if we look back in the press, we could find statements about how MySpace is invincible because of its size and its advertiser support. Well, it wasn't. There's no magic here. You have to actually run a business and you have to have a good design and treat both sides well and so forth. And then there was Jeffrey Manny from the International Center for Law and Economics. I've yet to see anyone really do a good job of explaining how size itself actually causes harm. There are people who think that 
our democracy is better served by having lots of small mom and pop shops than large behemoths like Amazon and Walmart out there. That's their preference. And if the politicians and the voters decide that that's a preference that we want to put into law, we can put that into law. But I don't see how that's an inherent harm of bigness. One of the strongest voices on the argument, big of itself is not bad, perhaps not surprisingly, was Google's chief economist, Hal Varian. And Hal also put a clear case on the second debate that just kept coming up. That is, just when should competition authorities intervene? And are there risks to innovation in jumping the gun, intervening without hard evidence of consumer harm? I think that regulators and antitrust authorities should be appropriately humble about their ability to predict the future because we in the industry have certainly become pretty humble on that uh, ground. You don't want to intervene because there's some anticipated or expected or maybe bad thing that will happen down the road. You really want to have hard evidence that some particular behavior is causing problems that might be dealt with by competition authorities or by regulatory authorities. On the other invisible hand... Antonio Gomez, head of the competition division at the OECD, encouraged intervention, but in a measured way. You also see in these markets some companies that do have quite some market power for a long period of time. So should competition authorities simply ignore it in the sense saying, well, let's wait for the next wave and this will be solved, or should they actually uh, look into cases, the potential abuses of of dominance and actually understand if, on one hand, if there is in fact dominance, if there is potential competition, I think that that needs to be uh, assessed uh, as well. And then if there is in fact an abuse, I would say it will depend on a case-by-case analysis, but I do think that there, there may be reasons for intervening in these markets as well. If there is to be intervention, then that raises the question, do we have the antitrust tools to deal with the new economy? This was the third debate that permeated many of the episodes. And interestingly, the clear majority view on this question was yes. As we heard from Professor Michael Gaul on the issue of so-called algorithmic collusion, Well, competition law is up to the task with regard to certain types of algorithmic coordination. Some cases are easy, but some cases are much more difficult. I think we have to be very careful and go in small steps here. For others, it's not necessarily a matter of just keep calm and carry on, but keep calm, understand the new business realities, and Most importantly, apply the economics. What's new isn't the business model. It's the understanding their economics. It's all about linking. You can't look at one side in isolation. You can't look at the price-cost relationships on one side in isolation. That makes a lot of things more complicated, like market definition, for instance. But it is an appeal to just sit back, be calm, think about the economic realities. So what's new is being systematic, but what's old is what antitrust uh, competition authorities have always done when they've functioned effectively, is to pay close attention to the business realities. The business realities for platform businesses look somewhat different, uh, but the fact that they look different doesn't mean there's anything wrong. 
But when it comes to applying economic principles, time and time again, we kept being reminded that that application can result in very different outcomes in different places. The transatlantic divide in this respect was yet another recurring theme. In particular, as many of you would be aware, one of the perennial arguments in this context is about whether fairness should have a place in antitrust. For economists, this is a hard pill to swallow, and it's a frequent ground on which to criticize the European approach. So in recent times, we see a lot of reference to the concept of fairness in several speeches of various commission officials. And I have no objections to fairness being a principle that guides lawmaking in the first place. But I think when it comes to enforcing the law and applying the law, fairness cannot be an objective that will guide enforcement and application of the law. Fairness might be appealing in terms of politics, but when it comes to applying the law, fairness would be a very bad guide. In the context of Google Shopping, I suppose the comparison shopping sites could argue that it's unfair that previously they were receiving traffic from the Google search engine and they no longer are, and this is unfair and this hurts their business interests, but whether that actually distorts competition is a separate question, and I think that's the question that matters. That was Professor Pinar Ackman on the episode about the European Commission's knee-wobbling fine against Google in the shopping search case. Speaking of Google cases, one of my favourite exchanges was during the episode on the Commission's decision against the tech giant in relation to the Android operating system. In debating the merits of the decision, Professor Nicolas Petit and Professor Simonetta Vosozo got quickly into whether we should favour the more restrained approach of the US authorities over the more interventionist approach of their European counterparts. You don't want Commission policy to be ran on half-baked Nostradamus-esque speculations that it's going to pan out badly in five years, especially when the orders of magnitude and the first level evidence that you have denotes exactly the contrary. So you're seeing companies which invest between 18 and 26% of their turnover into research and development. You're seeing companies which basically launch products at a pace that is unprecedented. So let, let's let the kids play and then uh, we will see and then the consumers will win out. Of course, I mean, definitely you should uh, help innovation. But the thing is, you shouldn't just concentrate on those big tech companies investing. You have to look also for the other undertakings in the market on other sides of the market, so a multi-sided view of innovation, and looking at their incentives to innovate. Look at them as well. Phew, that was a humdinger. But not my all-time favourite competition law moment. That honour goes to Dick Shemlenzi and his reaction to a rather priceless exchange between Mark Zuckerberg and Senator Hatch on Capitol Hill. How do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. <laughs> Have you not heard that? Yet? Yeah. 
<laughs> or does it just make you laugh every time you hear it? <laughs> I hadn't actually listened to the testimony. I'm not a great uh, consumer of news via video. I tend to be a newspaper person, but I, you know, you read the story and you say, these people actually didn't understand at all. That still makes me chuckle. But it also reminds us, we can't talk sensibly about developments in policy, regulation, and enforcement in this field without being sensitive to the politics at play. The risks of politicization were perhaps best highlighted by Professor Ruprecht Potzen in the episode where we asked, what's in the water in Germany? This is highly politicized. So politicians really tell us we need to use competition law now. So for decades, we haven't seen that much involvement of politicians with competition law as we have now. And I think they see competition law can be a very powerful tool. Wow, there is someone handing out a huge fine against Google. So they have discovered that there is a tool that seems to work somehow. And so they jump into the field. But if you're a competition law expert, as we claim to be, you probably also see a lot of problems with the high expectations that are placed on competition law nowadays. In explaining the US-EU divergence, geopolitics naturally came up. For some, digital protectionism on the part of Europe was at least part of the explanation for the divide. But for others, regulatory capture and political interference in the US shouldn't be discounted. Speaking of which, the importance of understanding the particular political, cultural and institutional dynamics at play at the national level was well illustrated in our episode on China. As explained by Dr. Wendy Nung, these dynamics help us to understand why the homegrown tech giants in that jurisdiction may have little to fear from antitrust enforcers. I think it's a very cosy, codependent relationship because it suits the economic interests of these companies and also the political objectives of the Chinese government. Because the Chinese companies, they help the government to collect the data. They also help the government to develop the technologies that enhance the state's ability to collect and analyze the data, to engage in surveillance, social control, maintain social order. So they benefit from helping the government do all this. And in turn, these companies are given access to the market. They're given privileges and regulatory environment that helps them to continue to do their business. And in fact, these companies are developing business models in response to the government's needs. law is a chance for me to explore the impact of technology on markets, both as an academic and as a consumer. And I've developed some personal concerns from both perspectives. As an avid consumer of online services, what struck me is how far we have to go in reconciling values we ascribe to free markets and values we attach to privacy. At possibly as most extreme, the free marketeer's perspective was neatly captured in the episode with Jeff Manny. While some people do apparently care a lot about privacy, a lot of people don't care very much about privacy. The price that they would be willing to pay to get more privacy seems to be extremely low. 
complicating matters further is that often the trade-off is not one between price and privacy. It's one between other product characteristics, other quality characteristics and privacy. By providing your data, you may be getting a higher quality product. We heard a very different view from privacy academic, Professor Colin Bennett. Oh, it's not only a trade-off, it's the big question about the future of the internet, in my judgment. Google and Facebook and other companies have built their business models on the back of being able to capture personal information without, generally without people's knowledge and consent, and processing it in ways that may be beneficial to us, but may not. Whether or not that business model can continue in the future... Aside from questions about regulation of privacy, I think is a huge issue and one that different societies are going to try and grapple with in different ways. Many people, including myself, believe that privacy is an inherent human right, that it attends to us by virtue of our humanity by virtue of our citizenship. And we all know when lines are crossed, whether or not harm is done. It's really a myth to say that young people don't care about their privacy. A vexed issue, for sure. But as far as government is concerned, I was reassured by Peter Harris, who strongly advocates for innovative policies that don't just protect privacy, but also galvanise competition. For Peter, you may remember... Competition is a means to an end for greater economic welfare for Australians. Privacy, got strong social policy objective. I like to think of these two for data as being different facets of the diamond. So you can polish the privacy facet, you can polish the competition facet. There are other facets of the diamond you'd call data which can be polished either by public interest or by private interest activity. But overall, you've got to view data in the future as being this diamond, this fantastic asset, because increasingly we can see it's the biggest driver of innovation, particularly in the services sector. Shine bright like a diamond. 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 Beautiful like diamonds in the sky. From an academic perspective, I wasn't just concerned to learn from Professor Danny Sokol that antitrust academics are not cool. I don't think antitrust was ever cool. <laughs> I think the strength of antitrust is that, in fact, it was never cool. It was the world of nerdy people, technocrats, the sort of people when you watch Big Bang Theory, immediately you can point to who among your academic friends or your government official friends would play each character on Big Bang Theory. That said, what makes it interesting, and I will take cool to be interesting in the sense that I don't think there's a single antitrust law or economics professor that was popular in the seventh grade. I believe this to be an empirical truth. <laughs> speaking for yourself. No, I'm speaking for everybody. <laughs> As you do. I was also concerned about the extent to which the power of big tech may be disrupting, corrupting even, the independence of academia, which, after all, is always what's made academia rather cool. The concerns expressed by Professor Yanis Lianis on this topic would have resonated with many in this space. That was great, but at the same time, we have been seeing in the press quite a lot of stories lately 
criticizing the integrity of academia, providing examples of colleagues or centers that have been funded by corporations in a way basically to promote the interests of, of these corporations. Obviously, that concerned quite a lot of us because it's a classic uh, market for lemons problem. <laughs> because once you have um, this kind of bad reputation for academia, it's extremely difficult for those of us that are not really funded to uh, be perceived as neutral and independent observers. Although I'm very positive about funding and even private funding, I don't necessarily criticize that. I do think that we need to be very careful about transparency. So disclosure rules, I think, are extremely important in this area. While they disagreed on several fronts, both Danny and Giannis emphasized the need for disclosure in academic research. And by way of disclosure, I'm proud to say that competition law is an entirely independent production. I'm the funder, host, and researcher, which may explain moments like this. When Jessica Simpson ordered an Uber taxi ride in New York City for both her kids to drop them off at birthday parties that were not so far away, and she ended up paying a few hundreds of dollars. And this is the algorithm. Should I know who's Jessica Simpson? <laughs> Am I revealing some <laughs> ignorance here, Michael? <laughs> I know who Kim Kardashian is, but I know who Jessica Simpson is. <laughs> well, I don't want to give you a mistaken answer here, but I think she's a, an American celebrity that does talk shows and she's a famous cook. Um, so clearly I have some brushing up to do on my research skills. Then again, we might forego the pop culture and stick to what we do best. As Michelle Gall suggested... Technology is running wild here. We have to run with it and think about these hard questions. And one last thought from Rod Sims, Chairman of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. All problems are good fun. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, you shouldn't be in the business, I think. Competition Law, L-O-R-E, is the business of this podcast. I hope you're enjoying it, and thank you to all of you for listening, and for your feedback and encouragement along the way. Thanks also to the wonderful guests who've shared their wisdom. And last, but by no means least, a loud shout out to my brilliant producers, James and Serple, from writtenandrecorded.com, without whose skill, patience, and good humor, there would have been no podcast. Competition Law will be enjoying the best of the Australian summer and is set to return at the end of January in 2019. I'm Karan beaton and I do look forward to your company then. A wrap.